update you a little bit. Bjorn Lornberg, someone who I've followed for quite some time. This is just to give you some optimism. We, we don't hear these things discussed. The end of the world is nigh. It is the end. The great extinction is taking place. The population needs to be reduced by a couple billion. Who's going to sign up? It's not my news. That's the left's version of reality. But Lornberg, Lundberg is someone who... He doesn't I, – I like his version of looking at things. He thinks everything's worth debating. We ought to talk about it, that science is unsettled, it's not finalized, and that we humans are the most adaptive species on the planet, and that all these doomsday sayers out there acting like the world it, – it, what it's, it's as if saying there's a car coming at you at 60 miles an hour, and you are going to stand in the middle of the road, blacked out, and you're not going to react to the car that's going to mow you over. You're not going to do it. And that's just that's just the craziness of the political left. They act as if we don't live in a very, you know, that we live in some kind of static rather than a dynamic world, that things are going to change and we're just going to sit there and get killed by them and, and die these horrific deaths and, and starve to death. We're not. The The world of capitalism adapts. We're able to get, you know, tropical fruits to the northern climates. We're able to grow crops in different places. We're able to feed the world. It's getting better. I mean, fewer people are dying of certain things, but certainly through COVID, I think that our government's proved how prone to failure they are. And by the way, third hour underway, Chad Adams, your guest host for Pete Callender, who'll be back bright and early tomorrow. I get the uh, the golden opportunity to be here part of the WBT family for the past week or so, ushering in 23. Pete will take it the rest of the way. But here's what he tweeted that's absolutely correct, and it's being ignored by almost every form of media out there. Did you know? that climate-related disasters killed even fewer people in 2022. So it keeps going down. By the way, 97.6% less than a century ago. So we had, what, a, a, about a billion people on the planet a century ago, 2020? And, and yet more people died then of climate-related problems than die now of them. Richer, more resilient societies reduce disaster deaths and swamp any potential climate change. Why is that not reported? It's always climate doom, never the reduction in climate deaths. So in 1920, it was close to 500,000 folks died in climate-related deaths. It's gone down, down, down in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, went up a little bit toward the end of the 80s, then back down, 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 down. We're saving more people. Maybe maybe that's what the left is upset about, that they want more people to die of climate. Maybe if enough people died because of climate stuff, then they would get their way, and we could all be in our little grass huts. I don't know what the building codes would look like, but, I mean, what are you going to build out of? You could only build out of recycled plastic. I guess you can't use wood because you have to harvest that. Not considered renewable by many on the left. It's not a renewable crop. Ah. <sighs> It's so much fun. Now, let's get to some fun. Is America suffering a social recession? Is America suffering from a social? And I'm just kind of, as I peruse this one, I'm, I'm not going to give you the subhead because we'll get into it in the piece. Ever since a notorious chart showing that fewer people are having sex than ever before first made the rounds, there's been increased interest in the state of America's social health. Polling has demonstrated, and this is from The Guardian, by the way, Polling has demonstrated a marked decline in all spheres of social life, including friendships, close friendships, intimate relationships, trust, labor participation, and community involvement. No bueno. Not good stuff. The continuing shift has been called the friendship recession or the social recession. 
And although it will make take years before it's clearly established, it's certainly worsened by the pandemic. The decline comes alongside a documented rise in mental illness, diseases of despair, and poor health more generally. Now, I ask you, when the political left is preaching doom and devastation every day, do you think that's good for the mental health of young people? Do you think it's good for folks that are afflicted with despair? No, of course it's not. In August of 22, the CDC announced that U.S. life expectancy had fallen to where it was in 1996. We went over this on the show last week. Contrast this to Western Europe, where life expectancy has largely rebounded to pre-pandemic numbers. What? Even before the pandemic, from 2015 to 2017, saw the longest sustained decline in U.S. life expectancy since 1915 to 18, when the U.S. was grappling with the 1918 flu in the First World War. The topic was has directly or indirectly produced a whole genre of commentary. Many of them touch on the fact that the Internet is not being built with pro-social ends in mind, increasingly monopolized by a few folks. Online life and its data have become the most sought-after commodity. The everyday person's attention has thus become the scarcest resource extracted. Other perspectives often on the left stress economic precocity, picardy, and the decline of public spaces as causes for our rising animosity. Some of these criticisms have been adopted by the new right, who additionally indict the culture at large for undermining traditions of sociality, gender norms, or family, believing it disproportionately affects men. This position has produced many lifestyle spinoffs, men going out on their own, trad life, no, sorry, tra traditional life nostalgia, masculinist groost, and hustle culture. But we don't really know. There's nothing to really compare what we've gone through and I could go through, I, this is a very long piece, and it's very detailed. We aren't socializing as much. We aren't sleeping as well. We are spending more time online by ourselves on average with each rising number of year. As of 2021, 31% of Americans claim to be online, quote unquote, almost constantly. If we are browsing alone rather than bowling alone, the real metric to look at is friendship. The past few decades have recorded a steep decline in people's number of friends. The number of Americans who claim to have no close friends at all across all age group now stands at 12%. Now think about that. One in 10. One in 10. By comparison, only 2% of Americans had that same opinion in 2003. Friendliness, friendlessness is more common for men, but it is affecting everyone. Another concerning trend is so-called late adulthood, which has been particularly common among those born from the 1990s on. The term refers to a delaying of traditional milestones, such as getting a driver's license, moving out, dating, starting work, and so on. I mean, I know tons of young folks that are, that are really, they don't. They're not as interested in getting their driver's license. You know it. You've seen it with kids and grandkids. They're not as interested in being independent. They're not as interested in moving. They maybe want to move out, but they want someone else to pay for it. They don't want to get their driver's license. They don't want to start dating, or they're not dating. The trend became more obvious starting in the 2010s. In 2019, it was complied, compiled in a comprehensive study, the sa same paper, The Decline in Adult Activities Among U.S. Adolescents, uh, found a similar decline in how often high schoolers went out without with their parents. Some of this is not necessarily bad. For example, delayed adulthood is linked to less of a desire to engage in risky behavior. But... So on the one hand, they're having less sex, they're, ha they're getting in trouble less, they're doing less risky things, but they also have no friends. They're very isolated. They're very depressed. That's why you're seeing suicide go up and, and uh, amidst you know, a lot of uh, drug abuse stuff, pill, pill popping. So what are we going to do when you look at this? 
you know, no one's going to pretend to know what it's going to look like since much of it has to happen organically. While the trends described here may be a new normal in the sense they can't be reversed, the author says, I still think more positive kind of online community is imaginable. It doesn't need to be the end. But but we are, you know, when I when I looked at this, there's, a, there's an accompanying piece over at the New York Post that says some similar things. It's talking about young folks. So when you take what I just read to you and discussed, What's going on with Gen Z? What are they doing? No smoking, drinking drugs, or sex. A lot of preteens and high schoolers, fewer of them, are doing any of that stuff. According to a new study in the journal Social Science and Medicine, people born between the mid-90s and mid-2010s are partaking in far less risky behaviors than their wild and crazy elders like us. The change, the researchers believe, can be chalked up to a combination of school pressures, stricter laws, and parental finger-wagging, among other factors, I would say being online, too. Still, the study found that there is one commonality driving all of these behaviors. Today's overly scheduled and phone-obsessed kids are less likely to engage in face-to-face time and hang around with their friends. The findings deduce that drinking, which can lead to cannabis use and sex, happens most at unstructured in-person social activities. And today's kids are much less party-hardy than past generations. 80% of 10th graders in the 90s reporting attending a rager with friends at least once a month. That number is down to 57% by 2017. Adolescent cigarette smoking declined more than 80% between 1999 and 2019 worldwide. And pint-pouring England, young people claiming they've drank alcohol within the past week, dropped from 25% in 2003 to 8% in 2014. Pot use in the United States has taken a hit. Just 34% of 15- to 16-year-olds in 2019 said they tried it, whereas the number was 42% just two decades earlier, even though it's more legal. And only about 20% of 14- to 15-year-old Americans reported ever having sex, down from 37% in 1993. So there's more to this. That's just part of it. That's the good news, kind of, I guess you could say. They're doing less of the things that damage them, but what are they also doing less of? Continuing along this excellent afternoon, beautiful weather, your guest host, your favorite guest host, right? Chad Adams here on Pete Callender Show, WBT, the best, the greatest station in the state. Love this station. Love the staff. They've, they've been outstanding my time here, just in my time on radio over the past uh, two decades. These guys have been great. They always are. And can't say enough good things about them. Appreciate it. If you want to follow me on uh, Twitter, it's, 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 it's at Chad underscore Adams. So it's not hard to find me. Uh, and I appreciate uh, one of the folks that's following me who said, hey, at Chad Adams, kids smoking fewer cigarettes per your data, but does that consider an uptick in vaping? Uh, great show. Happy New Year. Very nice and appreciate that. So I, I didn't want you to think that that I hadn't forgotten about that because that's absolutely there is a true there is that is true. So what I'm saying is when you look at this, when you look at the data, the number of, of folks smoking has declined 80% from 1999 to 2019. There's been an uptick in vaping. So if you looked at that across the board, you would see that more kids are trying vape. The good news is, even if you look at the vaping data and the smoking data, there's an overall decline, but vaping still not a good, healthy thing for kids to do. And if you look at that, you're looking at about 7.8% of eighth graders have admitted to vaping. And this is from the University of Michigan's Institute for Social Research. Uh, they found that about one in five high schoolers, about 20% vaped in the same time frame. So it, it, it went a, a little bit you know, from 7.8% to 20. So that's, it's pretty big, but the overall trend still heading the right direction. But vaping certainly is something that be has tried to take a hold and be cool, but a lot of kids still aren't 
going down there. A lot of kids will try it in college and stuff and then kind of move away from it. But the, the overall problem is that while they're not doing the risky stuff that a lot of teenagers have done, they're also living at home more. They're not growing up the same way. That's one of the most serious problems. Um, the paper that we had referred to from the Post, while the paper found that a plunge in the number of unchaperoned get-togethers has led to the new nun-like habits. I mean, really, this, and I, I've seen this with so many kids today. Even my own stepkids. I look at this and I just go, I'm just amazed at some of this. There's no single cause for the antisocial boom. For instance, while some pundits are quick to blame the internet, the study disagreed and actually linked increased time spent online to above average substance abuse. A more likely roadblock to rambunctiousness is greater dedication to school. Now, that would indicate something very strange, wouldn't it? If there's a greater dedication, it would mean that a younger generation realizes that the path ahead is going to be tough, and so they're more competitive in their studies. Is that possible? I'm more likely, since studies cited by the journal said that today's students are more concerned about their future due to an increase in competition among well-educated candidates, and they see uh, after-hours boozing as a hindrance to their success, another contributor is the so-called initiative acti- initiation activities, such as getting a driver's license and working a job, have become delayed for younger generations, and it's unclear why. Drinking, smoking, and getting it on have gone down in conjunction with not having a car, cash, or other adulting responsibilities. Rules have gotten rougher also. When it comes to booze and alcohol, laws passed since the 90s have made it harder to get and use both, while a barrage of advertising campaigns have highlighted their dangers. These efforts have had a proven and demonstrable effect of reducing consumption amongst young people and possibly have forced their parents to keep a more watchful eye. Whether or not these careful tendencies will prove to be a lifelong habit is unclear, but good luck asking a Gen Z colleague to get after work drinks with you. Now, there's this is much bigger in my mind, is if you look at building trends, and I I believe it holds true in Charlotte, it holds true in Atlanta, it certainly holds true in Raleigh, when you looked at building trends, millennials and these Gen Zers, it's it's bizarre. If you look at any college towns at UNCW, UNC Charlotte, at Chapel Hill, the building trends are moving away from, you can't can't call it master bedroom anymore because there's some connotations there that are not allowed. But when you look at the building, they don't include that suite at all. It's not an owner suite. They include making all these little bedrooms equal in size, and you'll rent, and, and the condos and building in a lot of downtown that they're selling are these Gen Z millennials that live on top of each other. So they'll live six, eight, ten people to a unit because the, the whole uh, privacy and sex and drugs and rock and roll lifestyle kind of out, and this this progressively tech-heavy uh, you know, contributing to a communal pool of paying bills is kind of the end thing, even around colleges. You see a lot of college, my stepkids that are, that are in school, they're, they're in that. I mean, they're in these, these three and four folks or more living in a place and paying rent communally, and, and, and completely their social life is all online, and then they, they will meet up. One's very active with a social life, very active social life. The other's not as much a socialite and very involved, and in they're both doing great in school, have a good work. They both work also putting themselves through school. But it's, it's remarkable to me that they're delaying, they seem to be. And again, this is not all. This is just a trend we're seeing. They're delaying adulting. The things that most people for the past 50 years have wanted to get, like driver's license and get out away from mom and dad, they're just they're just kind of in their own world. I, now, what I get concerned about is it seems to be less focused on friendships and that kind of, it, it's kind of an emotional distance that you see with a lot of kids these days. Um 
and I don't know, but you don't get a free lunch. So don't think that kids have changed over the past 10,000 years and they're automatically all, there's a good and a bad thing here. It's just something to be aware of as we move into this year. That's become, and then when you add to it, two years of lockdowns forced on kids, whether it was college or high school or grade school, you, you made kids, you treated them like automatons as if they, there was no individuality. There was this collective way of looking at things. Kids had the younger years had many struggles and have learning because they, their mimicry is limited by this crazy mask policy that did nothing to change the outcome of the disease. So at the lower levels, we're now behind in the way kids developed emotionally and the developed with verbal skills, and that's going to be taking years. And then the way you took away college life from kids for two years, you took away high school life from kids for two years, you made them less social, less able to do things. That doesn't just bounce back. They were already headed in a direction that was moving away from being around other people. I don't think that's a good trend for society. Again, that is me. Um, and so I mean no disrespect there, but I, when you see it, and if we're not paying attention to it, that's the future leadership. And then the question you have to add is, amidst all of this, in addition to everything else, what do you think that means with respect to how these youngins view the country? If they don't necessarily view themselves as connected to anything, do you think they're really connected to the country they live in? Or does it even matter? Are they concerned about the southern border? Are they concerned about taxes? Are they concerned about role of government? Because certainly they've been fed this, this endless parade of doom and devastation. Don't have kids because it's bad for the earth. It's, uh, you know, the earth is, is, is going the way of the dinosaur, that humans are destroying the planet. That's, so their mindset is not necessarily the most optimistic anywhere anymore. And that's what we need. We need optimism. That's what this, the new year usually is, a sense of optimism. If only we could carry the sense of optimism forward and marry it to actual ways of doing things in a productive way and being optimistic with young and old alike. But we will see. Much more to go here on the Pete Callender Show. I'm your guest host, Chad Adams. Rolling forward. Having so much fun. It's, it's, it's ludicrous. I, I've always loved broadcasts. It's... It's a love, a passion. It is something that is uh, something I've enjoyed for many, 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 many years now. So I appreciate the folks at WBT working with and Pete Callender. Looking forward to him being back. He does a fantastic job, the, the, the folks, as I've said. Now, a little bit moving forward. If you want to get in on the conversation, you've been thinking about it. You want, we know you're listening. But if you want to get in, it is the day after New Year's. Many of you off work today. The, the New Year for many of you starts genuinely tomorrow. And then the, the entire reality of, of work, stress, kids, everything starts tomorrow. But today, you know what? You can still enjoy your day a little bit, a three-day weekend. Beautiful one to have. Beautiful day to be outside. Five, excuse me, 5701110, area code 704-570-1110 here at News Talk 1110-993. Your guest host, Chad Adams. Now, about stress, and this is over at The Guardian. We went to a little Guardian earlier, but this is a different piece from a different place. Same, same journalistic enterprise. This is about stress. And you'll hear, you know, stress is the cause of so many horrible things. But at the same time, you know, when you look at animals, stress is part of part of the existence of most every animal out there. You know, in nature, there's something trying to eat, eat the animals. So the animals subject to that. If you go to zoos, they have a bunch of different, a very different mentality. Nothing's trying to eat them. So it's a very different uh, way for animals to exist, but it's part of life. It is for us humans, 
and there are plenty of things trying to take us down. I've always, my my big thing is, hey, nature is out to get you. Make no mistake. You know, when you go to walk up a set of steps, you go to trip. Gravity's really fast, and as you get older, it looks like gravity's faster. It's just not. It just happens. You ever fallen down? Even when you're playing sports, you get knocked down. You're like, wow, that was fast. It was so fast. And that's what I say, you know, you're carrying too many things. You're going up the steps and you drop things. You're like, ah, but it's really, hey, nature is out to get you. Research indicates that low level stress from moderate exercise. See, when I saw that, I was like, low level stress from exercise. Of course, it's good for you. But they didn't add. They didn't stop there. Low level stress from exercise or work can enhance our cognitive and physical abilities later in life. Few words in the English language conjure up more negative emotions than stress. The mere mention of that six-letter word elicits a mental image of looming work deadlines, unpaid bills, the pressure of exams, or tense family Christmases, to list just a few. But what if you were told that stress can also be positive? That just as it can harm us, it plays a role in strengthening our immune system, forging connections in our brain that improve mental performance and building the resilience we need to navigate our way through the vagaries of life. Now, I'm not talking about the bone-crushing stress that the world is going to end and that we're going to go the way of the dinosaur because of, you know, starting up your car in the driveway. I'm not talking about the pervasive negativity that the left pushes. I'm talking about your life and the way in which you manage stress and that stress can be good. Remember Gordon Gecko? Greed is good, for lack of a better phrase. But we're talking about stress can be good. The first, uh, this first came to light through the work of an American physicist called Ferdius Dabar, then a researcher at the Rockefeller University of New York who was studying the connection between short-term stress and the immune system as part of the fight-or-flight response. In the mid-90s, stress was viewed almost unanimously as bad. But to scientists, this was illogical. From a Darwinian perspective, the survival instincts of our animal ancestors would have been honed through repeated brushes with danger. In other words, all of you listening to this broadcast and those you see when you're out and about are the result of Thousands of years of decisions through stressful lives to survive and reproduce that led to us. They all went through that. The fight or flight, survival of the fittest, everyone in the past thousands of years got to this point that we don't have. It doesn't make sense. It does not make sense that stress would always be bad or harmful or negative. The fight or flight stress response is essential for survival. A gazelle needs this response to escape the jaws and claws of a lion, just as a lion needs it to catch a meal. Mother Nature gave us this response to help us survive and thrive, not to kill us. Over the past 20 years, Dabar and others have shown that bouts of short-term stress can aid us in the modern world. What? That's twice I've said that. That's unusual for me. Don't like to be redundant. A TED Talk by him, now a professor at the University of Miami, on the positive effects of stress has garnered 30,000 views on YouTube. It's not Herculean by any stretch, but interesting. For example, the tension of an upcoming race helps prime the cardiovascular and musculoskeletal systems of athletes. While surveys have even found that the stress of needing to get work done alongside childcare means that parents are likely to be more productive than sin- singletons. And I meant almost said simpletons, singletons and simpletons. Both mild to moderate physical and mental stress stimulate the production of chemicals in the blood called interleukins, activating the immune system and making it more able to fight off infections. While stress can affect the development of children before they're born, babies born to mothers who experience mild stress every day during pregnancy had more advanced developmental skills by the age of two. Fascinating. Compared with the children of mothers who had relatively unstressful pregnancies. There are also various ways to think about stress as well as the pressure and tensions inflicted by life. Different forms of exercise can be viewed as stress for the muscles. 
In January 2017, the French cyclist Robert Marchand made headlines by setting a new age group world record at the Velodrome in St. Quentin, I can't pronounce that correctly, but I did my best. What was particularly remarkable about Marchand's performance is that he had turned 105 years of age the month before, and his efforts made him the first centurion ever to demonstrate improved cardiovascular health with age. Exercise physiologists found that Marchand, who had begun seriously competing in cycling at the age of 68, had an aerobic capacity for exercise, the gold standard means of measuring cardiovascular fitness, comparable to men aged 42. He's 105. He started at 67. Scientists researching healthy aging now regard him as an indicator of what can be possible if we continue to apply manageable stress to our muscles, our blood vessels, our heart. But most humans are not like this guy. Most of us become progressively inactive, which exacerbates any age-related changes. As a result, our muscles aren't being stressed. They atrophy. They get weaker. The interaction between the nervous system and the muscles becomes less efficient, slowing our reaction time. That's why we fall quicker. If you fall quicker, it's because your muscles aren't up there. You're, you're not pushing yourself to have quick reaction times. A muscle which isn't activated really rapidly deteriorates in many ways. Muscles need to have stimulus. If you don't have a strategy going into the latter parts of your life, when you reach 70 or 80, you're likely to not have you know, much way of getting around. You're going to have limited mobility. Andy Phipps, head of biology at the aging program of the Centenary Institute of Sydney, Australia, explains that if an adult male spends five to seven days lying inactive in a hospital bed, they will lose about two pounds of muscle mass. But the person, the difference between a 30-year-old and an 80-year-old is that the younger person's body can recover it and regenerate the muscle quicker. Now let's go to cognitive stress. I'm not going to get through the whole article. I'm going to get to part of it. Exercise does not stress the muscles alone. It also works out for the mind. There's a two-way interaction between muscles and nerves that extend into your spinal cord. You need to do it. We know that our brain size decreases at a rate of about 5% a decade after the age of 40, <coughs> Joe Biden, uh, with the rate of decline increasing once we pass 70. Hmm. Yes, our octogenarian president should be aware of this. However, the shrinkage slows in older people who do exercise regularly. So the more you work, and I'm not talking about being Schwarzenegger here. I'm just talking about working out and being physically active. Get out there, move around, be a part of the world. There's a fine line between too little and too much stress. The constant low-grade inflammation that results from chronic stress is connected to obesity, heart disease, diabetes, depression, <gasps> asthma, Alzheimer's. Moderate stress is more like a pulse. With chronic stress, pathways get activated and stay active for a long time. We see this in obesity and diabetes. The inflammatory response, bad. Anyway, the point being, a little bit of stress, good. Lots of stress, bad. Do, you'll know what that is. Every person's different. Every person assimilates stress in a very different way in their life. The, the really important part is, and, and I would add this to things I've said in the past on this broadcast, we're finding more and more as we and the science, and, and unlike Fauci, who isn't science, people who disagree with Fauci aren't anti-science. They're just not. He did not. Science is ever evolving, ever changing. The science of the 70s, 80s, 90s on nutrition has been turned upside down 20 ways from Sunday. The point being, we're finding more and more that the ways in which we lived long ago, and I'm not talking about advances in, in health and stuff. I'm talking about even dietary. The more, the more stuff we, we ate, stuff that grew in the ground and that we killed and slayed and cooked, these things were good. Moving around, good. Things that are very commonsensical are good for us. So we get the benefits of the past, the knowledge of the past, without all this trendy crap, and then you add that to layers of science. 
then we that's where you get this great capacity to live much longer. Of course, genetic issues notwithstanding. And we'll get to that on the other side of the break. Welcome back, folks. Rounding out the third hour here. Been a pleasure, been an honor. We're going to get to Terry in just a second. Want to get to this first. WBT welcomes the Light the Nights Festival where you can make merry memories at Truist Field now through January 6th. There's an ice skating rink, snow tubing hill, plus enjoy light shows, live entertainment, holiday treats, Christmas trees, shopping, Santa Moore, brought to you in part by Piedmont Natural Gas, share the warmth. No, that's a live read. Yes, it's there. You can go see it. It's beautiful weather. Go check it out there at Truist Fields. Terry, uh, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm, you may have already covered this, Chad. I've only been listening about 30 minutes, but okay. it reminded me I'm 74 years old and I worked for Metropolitan Life for about 30 years, and they were constantly publishing pamphlets concerning health and welfare. And one of the pamphlets they published, I guess it was in the 60s, was about stress. And the first thing you read when you opened it was, people call stress bad. Stress is good. It's distress that is bad. It, and it went on to develop the difference between stress and distress. And it equated like it, gave a couple examples like going to the gym and working out is stress. And that's good for you. Distress right. is overdoing it and tearing all your tendons and ligaments. And I uh, love that. That make, that's, See, uh, that's common sense that's becoming new again. You know, it's been yeah. around for a long time. And uh, some stress is good. I mean, you know, when you get all amped up for that for that g- game or you get even do it a radio show, you know, you get that, that amped up feeling before that stress, that's your body preparing for something that's about to happen. And it's not necessarily and bad. One of, the, one of the things you said is don't call all stress, stress, because then you have to explain that good stress, bad stress, just call it distress, like disease. <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> Well, man, Terry, I appreciate the call. You sound like you're doing great. I'm doing great. I walk every morning, try to eat right, you know, try to work puzzles, keep my brain moving. Common sense. And you listen to talk radio, apparently, some. So we appreciate that. Thank you, Terry. Appreciate the call. And Terry's right. You know, (laughs) they're saying pamphlets from the 60s and 70s were saying this, and now we got millions of dollars of research saying, hey, what they said back then? Still holds true today. You see that? So did I. It's kind of like the sportscaster. It's calling the game. We have some people we love to do that. Gary Hahn, my NC State guy, who's on leave for saying that they're illegal uh, aliens in El Paso. Can't believe that, a 30-year career. But, you know, sometimes you have those sportscasters that they should just say, hey, did you see that? So did I. But uh, we appreciate all the calls, and Terry's call certainly notwithstanding. I do want to get to something here at the end of the, you know, as we see, we are in a, in a day and age of, really miraculous times. If we would allow ourselves to look through the prism of history and look at some of the things we know today that we didn't know decades ago or that that, hundreds of years ago. But I mean, when you had all of this stuff in the seventies and eighties, it was just wrong about saccharin. It was wrong. And it's not that bad for you. It was wrong. It was all this horrible stuff that was going to go, please eat margarine, not butter. Good old-fashioned made-from-milk butter that your grandparents said was the greatest thing ever. It tastes fantastic. Turns out, not so bad for you after all. You know, we had these people saying fat makes you fat. It turns out, no. It's, you know, it's these carbs that are killing us. It should have made sense. 
that carbs are killing you. It should have made sense that if you introduce all this stuff to your body, it's not there. And I'm no, I'm not, I'm not a doctor or diet specialist. I'm saying we're learning more. Many of us are benefiting from that. Now, a single hormone. This is from ScienceAlert.com. Speaking of age of miracles, a variety of age-related illnesses, including bone weakness, sexual dysfunction, diabetes, cancer, and cardiovascular disease. Can, they're not saying could be, can be predicted by a single hormone that appears at a steady level in men across the course in their lives, according to new research. The hormone is called INSL3. First appears during puberty. Puberty, sorry. I must have a low level. Uh, From then on, its levels only dip slightly in old age. The consistency and the early age at which it appears makes this very valuable to scientists and possibly men's health. Someone with lower levels of that hormone at a young age is probably going to have lower levels of the hormone in old age, the new research shows. If that translates to a greater risk of health complications, as the studies suggest may be the case, those health risks could potentially be managed many years earlier. Understanding why some people are more likely to develop disability and disease as they age is vital so that interventions can be found to ensure people not only live a long life, but a healthy healthy life says reproductive endocrinologist Raven Anand Avell from the University of Nottingham in the UK. Our hormone discovery is an important step in understanding this and will pave the way for helping a lot of folks help to ease the care crisis we see. You can look at this. It's a blood test. It's made by the same cells in, in the testes. Yes, for people who don't understand there's a difference between male and female, the testes. Yes, men have those. Uh, that produce testosterone, unlike testosterone, INSL3 doesn't fluctuate as we become adults. So you can monitor these levels. We know we might be able to do something with it. I mean, amazing when you look at the BRCA gene for women and breast cancer. If we can find these things that are key markers early on, imagine the savings to healthcare costs. That's what so many people, we we have this really crazy sick system. in the We treat sickness and illness. We don't treat health. Imagine if we started treating health. Because we know that early treatment, early everything, the first cell division of a cancer cell, if you could get it then, if you could get it then, then you can make a profound difference in people's longevity. And Because what you want to do, ideally, is you want to live as long and as healthy a life as you can and then have that drop off at the end, the inevitability of of what happens to all of us. But you don't need to live in, in dire fear and everything. You can do a lot to address many things that happen to us. We can't. We can do it. And the, the, the sooner we get to things, it's amazing. That's why I say we live in an age of miracles. A lot of women with early intradition, breast cancer is not as, as much of a killer, but it's early detection. It's studying the genes. There's so much we can do and so much we can be better at. And if this, this hormone for men, INSL3, that can be picked up with a blood sample, and then we can figure out how to work with that, then you have a better quality of health for men with fewer issues from the age of like 13 until your demise. Folks, we appreciate it. It has been a blast. Chad Adams, your guest host for Pete Counter. He'll be back here bright and early tomorrow. Thank you. Best audience in the state, best station in the state. Have a fantastic 2023.